Welcome to Rex Factor. This week, Victoria. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello. Welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the kings and queens of England from Alfred the Great to Elizabeth II. And this week, we're back in the ring to take another swing at Victoria. Another go at Victoria. This is part two of four. Um, it's the second half of her biography. Mm-hmm. 1861 to 1901. Um, before we get on to her again, mm-hmm. though, we've had a few more messages. Uh, this one's from Ian Campbell, um, saying, I love the show, gents. A great example of how to make history interesting and fun. I quite enjoy hearing Ali's use of crumbs whenever something bad happens to a monarch. It's a very useful word. And uh, Jane Tabatini added that since listening to this podcast, I've found myself blurting out crumbs on occasion. I don't think I use it that much. You do? I think it definitely does come out. Well, I'll keep an eye on that. It's probably fair to say, because this is another bit of us, the British slang, mm-hmm. I suppose. And for American yeah. listeners, that probably not the stuff that the kids are saying. Mm. Chaps, um, well, crumbs, etc. It's, it's new. It's street slang here in Essex. Verty <laughs> yeah. Worcester, yes. Dizzy Rascal, probably mm-hmm. less. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Dominic left a comment on the website about Richard the Lionheart. Mm-hmm. Um, who got the Rex Factor a very long time ago, he said, very poor that you gave the Rex Factor Richard the Lionheart. A great soldier, but a terrible king, both for the benefit of hindsight and modern sensibilities, but also, more importantly, for his subjects at the time. He may have been a hero to the nobility of the time, but I doubt he was to the common people of England, who he did nothing for. Cough out. It's a good point. He was never there, was he? He was never there, although I think it's one of those things where what people want from their king, what do people expect from the king? Yeah, we're very much still in their sword-waving... Yeah, so he was a legend in his own time, so I think yeah. this idea of a king who was conquering places, lands, yeah. taking back the Holy Lands, sticking it to France, mm. Mm. I think that would have been popular. I got carried away with all that period, I loved it. Yeah, you did, yeah. Yeah. There were castles, there yeah. all sorts of things. Brian Miller said this is a great series, although I, th- I still think George III should have won the Rex Factor simply for being so dull that he didn't provoke the spread of the French Revolution to Britain. <laughs> Had George IV been in charge at the time, we'd surely be a republic by That's now. That's a good point. I'm back in Charles II for the Super Rex, though. Absolutely. I mean, I'm impartial, but good point. <laughs> yes, it's the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> there are other kings available. <laughs> Um, another person on uh, Charles II, Dan, said, Finished Charles II, which is the one I've uh, most been looking forward to, and the one that led me here in the first place. Bless you for giving him the Rex Factor. I was so hoping you would, and I was on the edge of my seat during the <laughs> deliberations. My view is that he was a master tactician to be able to survive all the many and varied threats to his survival, which added to all the more salacious and better-known stuff for which he is known more than qualifies him. Exactly. You did a great job of presenting a balanced picture of him, and I believe London in particular would have been the poorer without him. Yeah, he... Um yeah, but he hid it all behind the sort of this sort of bonhomie exterior, a bit like Boris Johnson, actually a very shrewd brain. But yes, yeah, <laughs> it's a little sinister thing going on behind yeah. the jolly mask. But yeah, yeah, mm. agree. Um, another person referencing Charles II's Andre, and um, this is in relation to Edgar the Peaceable, mm-hmm. our most controversial decision. And mm-hmm. um, he said that he always used to disagree about that decision, but hearing Charles II whilst walking through a Bavarian wood and then scaring some boars by laughing. What? Who did? Oh, he did. He this chap. All yeah. oh, right, so then Charles. No. Charles thing to do. Well <laughs> I done, Andre. That story. <laughs> yeah. um, he now agrees because Edgar the Peaceable wasn't funny enough. Yep, quite so. We didn't include that, but I think uh, there has been a <laughs> subtext here that we, there's, it's always the funny ones. Yes, you say they all need their Python-esque moments mm. of entertainment. 
Back to Victoria, yeah. Catherine Schneider says she thinks it's a bit unfair on Albert by comparing him to Conroy in his attempts to control Victoria's temper. If she suffered from postnatal depression, he may have been bewildered at the loss of his wife as he knew her. She was always emotional, but if she became extremely so, it would have been natural to want to fix things, especially not knowing the cause of the problem. Yep, yep, I mean, yeah. It's just, it was a very, I think it's a very easy parallel to make. Mm. Because she's had it in the past, but I don't think it's a it's a bad one. I think there was yes, it's it's not sinister and malevolent in the way that Conroy was. Yeah, Albert was. It's for good reasons and it's sort of for improvement. Yeah, but it's just an interesting. I say parallel that it's another man in her life that's trying to limit exactly. Yeah, some of her tendencies similar, but just for different reasons. Very quick recap on the previous episode. Okay, just to show how I could have done it in so much less detail. (laughs) Um. She was born in 1819 to the Duke of Kent, who was the fourth son of George III, and Victoire, uh, who was the sister of Leopold, the first king of Belgium. Who he found out wasn't that one. Not the evil one, that was his son, Leopold II. Um, Father Kent died in 1820, and the family wasn't very popular with Prince Regent, and then later George IV, so they were kind of outcast. Into that uh, gap... Mm-hmm. left by Kent and George IV was Sir John Conroy, the head of the household, dominated Victoria's mother and used what was called the Kensington system, because she was at Kensington Palace, um, to keep Victoria <laughs> under his and her mother's thumb. So she wasn't allowed to see people, she was educated separately, couldn't go to court. Much of the annoyance of the next monarch, William IV, yes. who wanted her to be there more because she was his heir. Against Conroy's plans, Victoria is 18 before William IV dies. No so regency. No regency when she exceeds the throne, gets rid of Conroy. Happy start, going around on horses, playing chess with Lord Palmerston, no, but it? a bit too headstrong, a bit naive and immature, as you might expect, because she's been so kept yeah, back from society. Yeah. And partisan, she's very much pro-Whig, pro-Melbourne, fighting against yeah. the Conservatives, which isn't so good. As you then pointed out, she needs a husband, <laughs> which is what people at the time thought. Did I say that? You didn't realise it was actually going to be the next point mm. in the podcast. Okay. It made so, you seem more yeah. sexist than you'd intended. Yes. You meant it ironically. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's, yeah, shield of irony, yeah. Um, Albert, of course, is the man who comes along and mm-hmm. becomes her husband. Victoria falls head over heels in love with him and gradually cedes more and more of her power and her sort of role as queen to him, so it in effect becomes almost a dual monarchy. Yes, right. And he takes on so much work, he's already got a weak constitution, he's suffering from ill health, and in 1861, from probably a combination of factors, but brought on by catching a fever, he dies. And that's where we pick up the story. That is where we pick it up now. How is Victoria going to react to losing her beloved husband? Well, I can answer you right now, eh, Graham, she doesn't do very well. It is quite a reaction, is there to say. Yeah. Certainly, he was no, he was lot. He was a loss to the country, and this was acknowledged by many people at the time. Probably thinking we didn't really value him enough mm. at the time. Yeah. Almost instantly, there's this sort of outpouring of, oh, he was quite good actually. Mm. So, a Disraeli said, "We have buried our sovereign. This German prince has governed England for twenty-one years with a wisdom and energy such as none of our kings has ever shown." So, okay, that's quite big. What is they're saying that he he is a sovereign in name there? Well, in, in effect, in effect yeah. software, indeed, and Palmerston, who was Prime Minister at the time, said it was a matter of the most momentous national importance. The Queen would be a less national loss. Wow. God, so that's huge, yeah. So these factors, I think Albert really is, you know, he's mm. the real deal in terms of a statesman yeah. and a leader and all this sort of thing. This is, a, this is bad that's for the country. Huge. What, did he write, where did you find that? Was he, they kind of said that publicly. No, no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> a very ill-judged speech. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, so this is his letters or something. Yeah. Uh, but of course, the person who feels it most strongly is Victoria herself. As she says, For me, life came to an end on the 14th of December, when he died. My life was dependent on his. I had no thoughts except of him. My whole striving was to please him, to be less unworthy of him. But, oh, to be cut off in the prime of life, to see our pure, happy, quiet domestic life, which alone enabled me to bear my much-disliked position, cut off at forty-two, when I had hoped with such instinctive certainty that God never would part us and would let us grow old together. It's too awful, too cruel. It cannot, I am sure, it will not last, and those blessed arms will receive me very shortly, never to part." Ooh, she's actually wanting to die. Pretty much. She, she's saying, you know, I'm, this is going to be the end of me. She thinks that she's only going to be around for a few months or a couple Indeed. of years, and it's she's going to be gone as well. So mm. she's convinced she isn't going to be able to cope with this. Mm. So she goes into immense grief. Um, even to the point she sort of attended seances and consulted mediums. Really? Sort of interest oh, in the occult. Uh, to the extent that um, 20 years later when Disraeli was dying, and he was offered a consolatory audience... With Victoria, he said, no, it is better not. She would only ask me to take a message to Albert. <laughs> oh, God, too depressing to even see. Morbid mementos quickly become a thing for her. Um, on his deathbed, a photograph was taken of him uh, on his deathbed, and then it was sort of hung above his bed, so there'd be a picture of... Of a dead body? Of the dead Albert. What year was this again, sorry? That 1861. Mm, it's quite early, isn't it? Uh, a marble cast was made of his hand, which mm-hmm. she'd have by bedside and sometimes... Oh, that's sweeter. Sort of stroke. Uh, and a death mask, Grim. which she couldn't bear to look at. Yeah. Because it was a bit too creepy. Yeah, but wanted to have. But wanted to have it. Mm. Um, in his rooms, in some of the palaces, photographs were taken of all the rooms so that they could be preserved exactly as they were. That's quite a common thing with Greek, isn't it? It's weird, these shrines. Very weird. So, exactly, it was a shrine as if he was about to walk in. Mm. But not just keeping the room as it was. Clothes and fresh linen would be laid out for him and shaving water prepared. Every day? In the morning, yeah. Mm, less normal. So it's almost this sort of denial. So even um, things like in official documents, she'd strike out the word late in reference to Albert. Oh, she didn't like wow. to be reminded of it. And she insisted that when people visited, that they sign Albert's guest book as well as her oh, own. God, like Disraeli said, it was like calling on a dead man. Yeah. Um, most famously, Victoria, probably the defining image we have of her is this sort of portly little woman in black. Yeah. So she wears black for the rest of her life. Yeah. Now, the wearing of black is not such an unusual thing. It was standard at the time that for a parent or a child that you lose, you would wear black for a year. Right. Uh, Six months for a sibling, three months for an aunt or uncle, and six weeks for a first cousin. (laughs) Measured. It's like a very... Dane... What was it? That thing that Dane Lloyd, where you had to pay a certain amount for chopping off an arm? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. So it's very sort of set rule. So it's not unusual at the time in Victorian period for there to be significant yeah. outward mourning and the wearing of black. But it's not quite so normal um, to do it for the rest of your life. He was king. <laughs> king and all the name. So she wears black for the rest of her life, expected her daughters and ladies to follow suit as well. Mm. So she it completely changes the character of court. It very much just becomes this rather morbid, dark, yeah. grey... Somber, yeah. Place. So everyone, so ev- all, her, and that w- went through. Everyone around her then had to wear black. Yeah, and she at certainly expected it of her daughters. As well. At the most colourful time for empire as well. 
Well, yeah, that's about to come. Right, That'll okay. come a little bit later, the full mm. glory of Empire. Yeah. She does make some concessions as she gets older, so, so there'll be things that'll go over the black, and there's a little crown that'll go over her sort of widow's... Yeah, they're like white thing. Yeah. That is always the profile of her, as you say, portly woman, all in black, sort of looking stern and not mm. very happy. With the white cap. White cap, that's yes, mm. that's the yeah. Not only does she dress in black and grieve, but she also completely takes herself out of public life. So she stays away at Balmoral, at Osborne, away from London, mm. basically. She doesn't want to be anywhere near London. Refuses to open Parliament until 1866. How many years later? So that's that? five years later. Isn't that... The, what's the protocol there? Doesn't she have to open Parliament? She should, really. I mean, she doesn't every year. Oh, right. Um, well, obviously with this. Mm. But even in 1866, she didn't speak. Mm. So somebody had to read out the speech and she just sat there right, looking like she didn't want to be there. Yeah. Which, of course, she didn't. Uh, and she wouldn't make public appearances either. So, for example, the Silver Jubilee, which is coming up, and Albert had been preparing some plans for that. Cancelled. Cancelled. Couldn't face it. Oh, that's so sad, Paula. Well, um, so what did she do? What was her role? Just signing stuff? Just signing stuff. Um, she claimed to be worn down by grief, but also in the magnitude of the work. And, of course, it's fair to remember that, because Albert was doing so much work, and particularly one of the things he was doing was summarising official right, papers yeah. for her and then giving it to her. Mm. Suddenly, she was getting all this stuff unfiltered. Yeah. So there was an increase in paperwork yeah. for her to do. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you know she's, she's depressed. Her entire sense of self was pretty much absorbed within Albert. Mm. So to lose all of that and have all this stuff to do. And also, she'd always been shy in these sort of big state events and parliament. She always was nervous opening parliament. So then to have to do it without Albert by her side yeah. was another stress. It wasn't like she'd always loved doing it and now it's like, oh, I can't do it. It's always been a bit of a trial for her. Yeah, yeah. But now she's got to do all that alone. And in the past, when she's lost a big figure like that, mm. there's always been someone else there for her. So she lost, what was his name, the, uh, the guy, Kensington assistant chap. Conroy. And then her first prime minister. Melbourne. But then had Albert, and he's died, and there's no Melbourne to repl- uh, to be there to support. Well, indeed. So the, uh, there, there is someone who does, in effect, come to fill that void, um, which was John Brown. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Billy Connolly, as he's known. Billy Connolly, yes. Um, a Scotsman, um, promoted by Albert in 1849 to the position of Gilly um, in their sort of Highlands estates, which is the kind of sort of managing the estate, in yeah. effect, the hunts, the, all these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. In 1858, he was made Victoria's particular gilly. Right. So it's a, he was particularly attending her when she came to visit and he'd be leading her pony and that sort of thing. Um, and he'd accompany the family around the Highlands. So he's a known person to them and very much valued by Albert. Right. Which, of course, is yeah. something Victoria is going to value. So he was brought down to Osborne, in the Isle of Wight, from Balmoral, because they wanted to encourage the Queen to get out a little bit, ride again, go back on a horse, and take a bit of exercise. So they wanted at least to try to coax her out of yeah. dusty old oh, rooms and get her outside, even if she wouldn't be in public. And she took to him very much. He became a chief servant, bodyguard, and sort of odd job man, completely devoted to her. Is there anything in the, in the relationship... I think we'll maybe leave going into that for Scandal, scandal in a couple okay. of episodes' time. Right. Um, he was very informal with Victoria, very blunt and kindly manner. He'd call Victoria woman. What? 
That's not allowed. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, that's what everybody else thought. Yeah. They weren't too happy about this. Spoke his mind, ordered her about, which was kind of what she liked, because she liked a man thing. to take control yeah. of her. And John oh. Brown's man who takes control. Um, there was one time when he, she uh, congratulated him on making the best tea cup of tea she'd ever had, to which he replied, well, it should be, Mum. I put a grand nip of whiskey in it. <laughs> Good. She needs one of that. So, like I said, she's relying on this masculine man to mm. take care of her. Yeah. Much like her mother as well, in fact. Her mother relied on Kent and then on Conroy, so... Yeah, yeah. Certainly a trait between mother and daughter. As she herself said, God knows how I want so much to be taken care of. Mm. Now, we're going to look later at the scandal element, but what's important now is that it was a scandal at the time. Right, okay. And he was very unpopular among the public and certainly among the rest of the household, and indeed the family. He was arrogant, he was aloof, thought himself above all the other servants... And indeed ministers and generals and other people that come to visit. The children, especially Bertie, Victoria's eldest son, Albert Edward, hated his informality and hated the control that he had, the fact that he would order them about and he would tell them, no, you can't come and visit. You can't come in now, she's not seeing you. That's quite a step of control, isn't it? And in his blunt terms, in the way that he would speak to Victoria and she quite liked it, everybody else not quite so keen on him speaking like that. So... He's not very popular with them. He has a bit of a weakness for drink. Yeah. Okay. Um, to the extent there was one time that he completely keeled over whilst <laughs> on duty. So Victoria, to cover for him, pretended there'd been an earthquake. Which <laughs> just knocked him over. <laughs> Anybody else feel that? <laughs> no, no, strange. Just hear that. And, of course, there is gossip in the press that they were having an affair. Yeah. So cartoons of him, rumours of a marriage. That's where she gets the nickname Mrs Brown. Mm-hmm we now remember from the film with Judy Dench and Billy Connolly. So it's helping her in one sense. She's coming out of her shell a bit more again. She's able to laugh. She's able to not move on as such, but to get back into life. But she's still not really wanting to go out into the public. And he, in effect, kind of encourages her to stay cocooned because he's going to protect her. Right. These sorts of people. So it's not getting her... But at least she's doing stuff. But at least she's doing stuff. She does make some public appearances, but they are entirely to open memorials to Albert. <laughs> really? That's pretty much all that she will do in public. So um, there are lots and lots of statues and memorials all across Britain. There's a statue in Balmoral. Manchester has an Albert Square and a statue. EastEnders, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the two most famous ones. 1871, we have opened the Royal Albert Hall. Yeah. Um, cited an area which was designed by Albert to be what was going to be called an Albertopolis. No way. I'm not sure if that was going to be the ultimate name, but it was sort of the nickname. But this is an area he'd intended to be permanent facilities for public entertainment. Oh, OK, right, yeah, yeah. It wasn't something <laughs> grandiose to you guys. sort of with this big model of his new London that he was going to design. <laughs> yeah. no. um, and so that was 1870? 1871 that it's opened. How long after? When did Zygie keep 1861. Right, okay, yeah. Um, she was there, and the speech was actually made by Bertie, because Victoria's a bit too emotional to do it. Um, it wasn't perfect when it opened because it had terrible sound really? quality. The Albert Hall had really bad sound quality. It was said to be the only place where a British composer could be sure of hearing his work twice because <laughs> there was such bad yeah. echo. Um, so it was only solved in 1969 when they installed these sort of diffusing discs or mushrooms, as they're known. So if you look up in the Albert Hall, you see these funny, yeah. weird-shaped yeah. things, and that's how they solve the echo problem. So that right. solves the sound. Yeah, OK, interesting. 1872, there was the Albert Memorial... That's the one in Hyde Park? Yeah, so that's the one which literally just faces 
the yeah, Albert Hall. I ran past there this weekend. Ah, mm-hmm. went to, in much pain. Yeah, so I didn't have a chance to look up properly. It's a huge, huge statue, 176 feet tall. Um, opposite, looking at the hall, took 10 years to complete and cost about £120,000. Wow. There's about £10 million in today's money. Yeah. Designed by George Gilbert Scott. Very unpopular with the public at the time. Really? Did well, because you think it took 10 years to do. So in 1862, when they started, you know... It took 10 years to build that? Te- well, 10 years to complete everything. I mean, you think the amount of gold and all the designs intricate around, and it's massive, massive thing. Yeah. It's not very pretty if I'm honest with it. And it's a lot of money to spend... Yeah. Can't imagine it's the age of recession though in Britain at the time, is it? Uh, no, but there were other things that you might mm. spend Maybe money some on. Some tuberculosis clearing up here and there. So that's where she's putting her efforts. Yeah. Which isn't really what the public want from a monarch. And indeed, she starts to become a bit unpopular as a result of all of this. Charles Dickens wrote to a friend, "If you should meet with an in- if you should meet with an inaccessible cave anywhere to which a hermit could retire from the memory of Prince Albert and testimonials to the same, pray let me know of it. We have nothing solitary and deep enough in this part of England." So this sounds quite a lot like um, we've mentioned this before, but the Diana death of Diana. Mm. You couldn't escape that for ages. There's memorials going up all over the place. Well, this yes. is ten years later. This is ten years later. That's extreme. Mm. 1864, a mock placard was placed outside Buckingham Palace, which read, These commanding premises to be let or sold in consequence of the late occupant's declining business. <laughs> was uh, he? The Daily News at one point said, The Queen is teaching the people to think too little of her office. Mm. And because she's shut away, nobody can see her, rumours start to circulate. Um, some people thought that she'd gone mad, like George III, which is still this long-standing issue that's hanging over the royal family. How many years ago was that? That was quite a, not quite a hundred years before. Uh, no, it was... Well, I mean, he was his madness was sort of the 1810, so it's about 60. So, yeah, so it's still fresh. Then. Very fresh in the memory. And, of course, it was probably wrongly thought at the time that it was because of emotional issues that drove mm. him mad. So with the Victoria, they think, oh, it's going to be yeah. the same. Um, it was also suggested that she was either planning to or should abdicate in favour of Bertie. Just because she wasn't doing it. Just because she just yeah. wasn't doing the job. The children were so alarmed at one stage that they're actually planning to write a letter that they'd all signed, saying to her, Look, get out there and do something. Really? This is ruining it for all yeah. of us. Yeah. We want this. 1870, Gladstone um, said that to speak in rude and general terms, the Queen is invisible and the Prince of Wales is not respected. But So the children must have been picking up some of the slack opening stuff. Or well, but she wouldn't let them. So Bertie oh, in particular, because right. she resents him, she blames him for Albert's death because he went to see him when he had that indiscretion with an actress, and that's when Albert went to see him and caught his fever. Oh, that's... I got a heads up, so Victoria thinks it's his fault. So she says she couldn't even bear to look at him for quite a while afterwards. Wow. And even after that, she doesn't want to give him any position, doesn't think he's up to the job. Mm. Mm. Does that ever get resolved? Uh, We see there's a bit of a reconciliation, but she never entirely... That's a shame. ...has faith in him. If anything, that's a reason for her not to abdicate, because she thinks, well, I can't... It will... Yeah. Burn if <laughs> better do nothing than give it to him and muck it up. Yeah, um, but as you said, Gladstone had observed this. It's it's not just the press and people like Charles Dickens. It's the people in power as well that are desperately trying to get her to do something. So, a man General Grey told Disraeli and Gladstone um, when they were prime ministers that Victoria was playing the frail feminine card in uh, telling everybody that she couldn't do public duties and was becoming something of a royal malingerer. <laughs> in mm. effect, saying, "Look, she's not actually ill." 
She could be doing stuff. She just doesn't want to. Yeah. Um, but Victoria was having none of this. So when sort of told that the public wanted her to be out and see her more, she said, the important thing is not what they think of me, but what I think of them. Oh, arrogance. Well, yes, yeah, she becomes incredibly stubborn mm. in this period. She won't see everybody else's view. She's very much just in her own headspace. Yeah. And it gets so bad that there is an increase in this period in republicanism. Led, is it led by anyone famous, or is it just a, a broad sweep? Um, uh, well, it comes some names, and we'll see if she okay. reacts. Right. Context for this, 1860s, there wasn't much interest among radicals in the monarchy. But 1870, in France, Emperor Napoleon III was imprisoned, and then France declared a republic again. And then in Britain, Republican clubs springing up all over the place. All these different cities, mm. they're springing up. There's newspapers such as The Republican, um, by a man called Reynolds. And people are starting to feel that, actually, do we need a monarchy? Is it worth having? What's she doing? Mm. So in The Times, John Delane wrote, it's impossible for a recluse to occupy the British throne without a gradual weakening of that authority which the sovereign has been accustomed to exert. In 1870, Charles Bradlaugh said, The experience of the last nine years proves that the country can do quite well without a monarch and may therefore save the extra expense of monarchy. Good point. He's saying, you know, what would be the difference if yeah. we well, weren't no, paying for it? Yeah. We're not getting anything. 1871, this is the real man, um, Sir Charles Dilk. No, don't know. <laughs> a Liberal MP who accused Victoria of hoarding a private untaxed fortune. Which, is it true? Yeah, probably, yeah. yeah. Uh, but he said, in Parliament... If you can show me a fair chance that a republic here will be free from the political corruption that hangs about the monarchy, I say, for my part, and I believe the middle classes in general will say, let it come. Was that getting close to anything illegal, saying stuff like that in that time? Uh, treason. <laughs> was it, is that still... How serious was how seriously was that taken? Well, I mean, it's, it's a serious concern that mm. all these people are saying all these things in public, that it's more and more groundswell of opinion that is anti the monarchy. Certainly this is the worst since the Civil War in terms of a threat of the monarchy yeah. going away. Right, OK, away so with. really, really heavy. And looking back, Ramsay MacDonald, future Labour Prime Minister, in 1901 said that the throne seemed to be tottering at that time. The Queen and the Prince of Wales had no hold on the public mind. Yeah, yeah. So he's saying there was a sense of this won't last. There were limits, of course, to the Republican movement. Few politicians actually put Republicanism at the top of their agenda. So they were really more interested in other things, in social reforms. They kind of presumed that once the good reforms were done, the monarchy would just disappear as part of that movement. But also, these are disintegrated groups. They're not really... There isn't a movement and there isn't a leader, like he was saying. There isn't somebody that's spearheading it. Yeah. So for that reason, it never quite becomes a force in its own right. Mm. It's more a case of Victoria damaging it by herself than anybody else actually attacking yeah. it. There's no Cromwell, i.e. OK, but it's as serious. From But it is serious, and mm. people are quite rightly saying, what what is the monarchy if it's yeah. absent and hiding away in Scotland? Yeah, fair, fair enough. But... Victoria does emerge. The, em- the Empress yes. strikes back. Yes. <laughs> Disraeli and Gladstone are very important here. Arch political rivals, but they both try to coax Victoria out of her retirement. Disraeli is perhaps a little bit more sex- uh, mm. successful because she likes him, because mm. he flatters her somewhat rotten. Um, so she starts to open parliaments for him. Right. Only she, him? Only him. She <laughs> won't do it for Gladstone, but she does it for Disraeli. 
Another big step in 1868 is the publication of her Leaves from the Journal of Our Life in the Highlands from 1848 to 1861. She publishes a book. And, and 61 is the year that, that Albert dies? That's the year it dies. So that's the period covering right, that it goes okay. up to. So she publishes her personal writings on family life and all their trips up to Scotland. Does it do very well? Bestseller? And also some of her watercolours. It is a huge bestseller. It sold 80,000 copies in the first three months. Yeah. So it's probably the entire print run. 103,000 copies by the end of the year. And then it was translated into lots of different languages, sold all over the place. Huge success. Public absolutely lapped it up. This is oh, the yeah, first right. time since James the first that we've had a monarch actually publish their own what opinions. What did James publish? Oh, the Bible. Well, <laughs> but I believe those were the disciples of uh, Jesus who were first in line. They take all the credit. <laughs> uh, no, he published treaties on things like um, smoke, anti-smoking, for oh, example, yes, and morality and political treaties. Right. But Victoria's the first one to really put out a sort of a celebrity book. Yeah. As yeah. such. She's very much the Jordan of her day. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Um, but public love it. So this helps to restore the bond a little bit and is a reminder that she just does a tiny little thing like this and everyone goes crazy for it. Yeah. So that affection lingering is still there. Like Dylan in the late 70s disappears but comes back. It's <laughs> <laughs> toying with you. Um, and in 1871, she gets very active. Mm-hmm. In February, she opened Parliament, which in itself is pretty big. Yeah. March, she presided over the wedding of her daughter Louise and joined them in a carriage ride through London. Uh, she also opens the Royal Abbott Hall, of course, as we said earlier, yeah. declared open St Thomas's Hospital, and praised, uh, praised Florence Nightingale in public for the work that she did right. as a nurse in Crimean War. There was more activity in 1871 than there had been for the last ten years. Wow. In terms of public What was the, what was the spark there? What was the... Uh, well, I think she's just gradually being she's coming out of it. brought out. And uh, uh, Mr Brown's around at this point. Mr Brown's out, so that'll be helping. Yeah. And Disraeli... Yeah, will be helping, okay. and you know it's just yeah. starting to improve. Starting to However, there is a big catalyst that really changes things, and that is Bertie. The son, Bertie. Son, Bertie. As you said, not a particularly good relationship. Things mm. aren't going well. But in 1871, he catches uh, catches an infection from contaminated drinking water, and develops typhoid fever. Uh-oh. Uh, and, of course, fall very, very seriously ill. Now, 1871, this is, of course, ten years after Albert died, and it was widely presumed that he had died from typhoid fever. Yes, yeah. And it is also in the latter part of the year, December. So it is almost exactly ten years since Albert died. So, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so, Victoria is by his bedside throughout... Sort I thought of, she hated him. Well, it's oh, one this of those, reconciliation. It's one of those classic things that as soon yeah. as you lose the person, or nearly yeah. lose them, that's when you realise how much mm. they actually mean to you. So she's at his bedside throughout, very distressed when he starts raving, because really? he's got a fever. Oh, well, apparently he was starting raving about things that he was going to do when he was king, which, because he was raving, apparently quite eccentric. Um, on the 11th of December, the doctors feared that he wouldn't survive the night. But then... Incredibly, the crucial night and day really was the 14th of December, the 10th anniversary of Albert's death. Really? That's the point at which it comes to its worst point. His fever intensified, his breathing was all over the place. Bell ringers across the country were primed to uh, ring out a death peal to announce the fact that he died. Punch magazine prepared 
two covers. Right. Say one if he lived, one if he died. Yeah. Many magazines didn't bother doing a if he lives one. Really? That was how much on death's door he absolutely was. Everybody was gathered round for that deathbed scene. However, the fever subsided. And gradually, Bertie recovers. And there is a national outpouring of initially prayers and concerns and sympathy, but then just celebration that he has pulled through. Fantastic. And it's a major popularity boost, both for Victoria, for Bertie, and for the whole royal family. Yeah. So Gladstone takes the opportunity to really cash in for the royal family here. Is he Whig? Um, well, it, the Lib- Liberal Party oh, now okay. is coming to being. We'll see that next time we do yeah. Prime Ministers. So Gladstone is a Liberal, Disraeli is a Conservative. He sees a great opportunity to really cement their popularity, so he organises, and really has to push Victoria to agree, but she does, a day of Thanksgiving for Bertie's recovery. Mm-hmm. This is in 1872, the next year. So there's a procession through London to St Paul's Cathedral, in which the royal family going through on open carriages. Bertie coughing into a handkerchief? Or? He's a little bit better he's by now. They've waited right. until he's fully recovered. Streets are filled with crowds. There's flags, there's ban- uh, bunting, there's military bands. Uh, Victoria and Bertie sit together in their carriage. Mm-hmm. And there's at one point when the carriage stops. Bertie was raising his hat all the way through, acknowledging the cheers. But the carriage stops. Victoria took Bertie's hand, kissed it, and then triumphantly lifts it <laughs> into the air to huge wow. cheers. Wow. And applause. So she really milks the crowd. Sort of remembering when she was a teenager and she'd gone on those processions with the public. It's almost echoing that again, sort of Elizabeth I, this real playing to the crowds. Brilliant. They love it. And it gets even better because they then go off to the balcony on Buckingham Palace and do a little wave, Mm -hmm. which is obviously a popular sight nowadays. And then she was nearly assassinated. Really? A man, Arthur O'Connor, who was a great nephew of a Chartist leader, I say nearly assassinated, he waved a pistol at Victoria. It wasn't really... He didn't fire it. He didn't, didn't proper, uh, fire it. He wanted to demand the release of Fenian prisoners. Mm. So he was going to wave a pistol at her. And the Irish prisoners. Irish right? prisoners. Yeah. Uh, John Brown saw him early and took him out. Yay, go John Brown. Saved the day. And it was another huge boost to Victoria's popularity. Yeah. So it was riding a, riding a wave of momentum. Because mm. then people say, God, this man tried to kill our queen, our poor defenceless queen whose sons and nearly died, all of this. Torag John Brown got him out of the way. Exactly. Well, it helps John Brown yeah. as well. It improves his yeah. standing a little bit. At this point, Sir Charles Dilk, the Liberal MP, who called yeah. for republicanism, he calls for a public inquiry into Victoria's personal expenditure. Um, two people vote for the motion and 276 voted against it. <laughs> is that a record? It's, uh, it's pretty strong. And this is, in effect, the death knell of the Republican movement yeah. um, under Victoria. Dilk himself actually later declares himself for the monarchy. Really? So it's a complete turnaround. Mm, yeah. She's all right. Right, OK. Everybody's back on side and she's in the public. OK, now she's back on form, she's out, she's ready for action. Or is she going back? No, she's out. I mean, we'll just say, because we've had there, that was uh, Arthur O'Connor attempting to assassinate Victoria. She yeah. many times actually is a target of assassins or madmen. I've never heard this. Um, actually, seven times between 1840 and 1882, people tried to kill her. How many times did George the Fourth? Well, well, that will yeah. get mentioned. Okay. We'll go through them now. First one was in 1840, Edward Oxford. This was four months after she married Albert. Um, they were driving in an open carriage from Buckingham Palace when they heard a loud bang. 
Albert threw his arms around her, pushed her head down as a man shot at them. So he was there at the side of the road shooting. Really? Part shots at them in their carriage. Um, until on. he was uh, seized by uh, the father of John Everett Millay, a pre-Raphaelite artist. Not just someone in the crowd? Not not a soldier? Or a well, because they weren't... He wasn't lined with lots of security and armed personnel yeah. and whatnot. They didn't have those. Wow. Same level of security in place. So yes, it was just someone in the crowd that took him down. Victoria's very annoyed when um, he was declared insane and sent to an asylum. Mm. He thought he should go to prison. He was shot, wasn't he? Well, because well, he was insane. So oh, yeah. 1842, John Francis, again, the carriage driving along the mall when a man pushed forward, pointed a pistol at Victoria and pulled the trigger. Mm. Uh, but it either wasn't loaded or it misfired. Right. Now, they decided that he was probably he probably tried again, so they did the same route the next day to bait and get That's him out. That's amazing. With, uh, with a dummy or a proper... No, with Victoria, and he pointed the pistol at Victoria again, but this time he was arrested. Uh, condemned to death, but it was commuted to transportation. So he was sent off to Australia. So they got to the point where the only thing between Victoria and death was that someone had to catch this fellow before his finger pulled the trigger. <laughs> it's a f- perfect plan. It's Flawless. Nothing can go wrong. <laughs> Um, 1842, two days after um, John Francis, the previous one, was given his reprieve, a 17-year-old man, John William Bean, who was a hunchback dwarf... <laughs> Sorry, that's not funny, but go on. Um, also shot at Victoria, uh, but his pistol had more tobacco and paper than it did gunpowder, so it was completely useless. He must have been insane, wasn't he? Um, he escaped... Well, he actually escaped initially, but what the police did was just they rounded up all of the hunchback dwarves in London. <laughs> so it's a small pool. <laughs> and then they found him yeah. and arrested him. 1849, William Hamilton tried to manufacture a firearm from wood and spout of a kettle before eventually borrowing a pistol from his landlady. Would have been easier. Um, but he forgot to load the gun and was captured. These people are such amateurs. That's <laughs> really amazing. Are. So... Lord Shaftesbury noted at this point, the profligate George IV passed through a life of selfishness and sin without a single proved attempt to take it. This mild and virtuous young woman has four times already been exposed to imminent peril. I thought George IV had a, an attack on him in the carriage. There was one... Um, oh, it was George III in the carriage. Oh, right, okay, I think yeah. there was one attempt, uh, possibly, on George IV's life. Then, 1850, Robert Pate. Um, she was visiting uh, Victoria, her gravely little uncle Adolphus, in the carriage when um, he got to Walter and struck her over the head with a brass end of a stick. He hit Victoria he over the head? He actually hit her over the head, crushed the bonnet and actually drew blood. What? Why is she just out on her own? I don't think she's out on her own so much as the guy's just able to get to her. Right. Um, then in 1872, of course, we had Arthur O'Connor, who was um, stopped by John Brown. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then finally, in 1882, Roderick McLean fired at Victoria's carriage uh, at Windsor Station. Mm. Uh, but two Eton schoolboys intercepted him and then started hitting him with umbrellas. I uh, say, I say! <laughs> uh, before he was arrested. Uh, apparently he'd recently left an asylum, so he was found not guilty on the grounds of insanity. Mm. And Victoria hated this, completely went against all logic, she thought. So they actually changed the law, so there was a new sentence, which is guilty but insane. Right. Which stayed in the statue books for a long time. Um, But as she herself noted after this, it is worth being shot at to see how much one is loved. Because Mm -hmm. it really increases her popularity. Because, of course, people are shocked by the idea that someone would try to kill her. Yeah, did Kennedy the world a good? Yeah, well. (laughs) Well, his reputation. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah, Uh, So, she survives all of this. And she gets a chance to enter a Victorian golden age. 
This is the period I'm thinking of. This is the period I'm thinking of. This is arguably the zenith of British power mm. in the world. Mm. Two crucial men for this, who we will do a lot more on next time, but we do have to introduce them here for this episode, Gladstone and Israeli. Yeah. Political rivals from the 1860s to uh, 80s, mutual antipathy, um, really hated each other. Mm. Um, although Victoria did adore Disraeli, and she couldn't stand Gladstone. But how much sway would that end up having? How much of an advantage that would give Disraeli? A lot. Right. It is important. It's more, well, maybe more of a disadvantage to Gladstone. Right. Because ultimately elections, being what they are, mm. forces her hand somewhat. Um Disraeli spearheads imperial expansion and gl- the glorification of it, so imperialism, uh, while Gladstone encourages national acts of dedication, like we saw with that day of Thanksgiving, and also a sort of a more radical working-class appeal mm. and social reform. So together, they really advance Britain. Yeah. And Victoria returns to the fold fully as a public figure. She's back in the game, fully engaged in national and international affairs, and this is when she becomes this sort of supreme queen and Empress. And what year is this? So this is sort of 1870s, 1880s. That's 20 years, eh, sir? Mm. After his death. And it's Disraeli that gave her the title Empress, wasn't it? Indeed, as I say. so. flattery. Indeed. So Disraeli, first of all, a conservative. Um, a charming and flattering dandy, yeah. in effect. First becoming Prime Minister in 1868, um, instantly won Victoria's affection. So as I said, she showed this support by opening Parliament in person for him, mm. which he wouldn't do for Gladstone. And she just said that in 1876, Disraeli put through the bill that made Victoria the Empress of India. Mm. She's very keen on India and her imperial possessions, and she absolutely loved being given this title. Gladstone spoke vehemently against it, which, of course, didn't go down well with Victoria. Yeah. Disraeli actually had personal doubts about it, but obviously, being the kind of chap that he is, he thought, well, it's better to get, get Victoria's yeah. support and then we can use this for the Conservative Party. Victoria's delighted. And there is a lot of this kind of stuff. Imperialism happens now. She never went to India, though, did she? She never did. Bertie does. Oh, right. He goes to India. And it's actually when Bertie's there that she gets the title Empress of India, and he's a bit peeved that nobody told him about it. Mm. Um, Disraeli pursues pursues what's called the Great Game, which is a rival with uh, Russia, uh, imperialism around the world. Um, so he exploits expansion of the empire for sort of populism for the Tory party. So they're seen as the party that is patriotic and improving Britain's glory and How wealth is that and standing. Patriotic? I think we more patriotic to do social reform at home. No, because we're getting glory and wealth yeah. and treasures and it's just like it's always confused Britain that, being powerful and yeah. all these yeah. sorts of things. Um, not popular with everyone, of course. Gladstone doesn't like imperialism. As he said, Dizzy is looking for the weak side of the English people. Yeah. Dizzy as in Disraeli, not yeah. Dizzy Rascal. <laughs> we presume that Dizzy Rascal's full name is Disraeli Rascal. <laughs> um, so I said this is the greatest spread of British rule over the world in history. About a quarter of the world's population come under That's phenomenal, isn't the it? British Empire. So we've got Canada, the Caribbean, Malta, South Africa, parts of Western East Africa, the Sudan, India, Hong Kong, Australia and New Zealand. It's, of course, famously said that the sun never sets in the British Empire. Yeah. Because it's so spread over the world that it will always be and then shining somewhere. It must be. if it, You're on each continent, which they are. Even, yeah. Even South America. Mm. And then uh, there was Sudan at this time as well. Mm. With, um, what's his name? Gordon. Gordon. And Egypt and all that. Yes, yeah, huge, mm. huge. Huge movie. empire. And Victoria very much urges Disraeli to be even more interventionist. She loves... 
all of this accumulating things really? and the glory and the power and mm. all this sort of stuff. She likes being queen of all these. Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? Basically? Different people. Um, and this is really where we see her personality. It's almost come full circle because we had this sort of very headstrong, bubbly, stubborn yeah. young girl. Yeah. Then we had the more subservient wife. Then we had the weeping widow. Mm. She's kind of back to this sort of vibrant, headstrong... Right. Stubbornness. With except, Disraeli at charge. With Disraeli, except now she's got the confidence of having been queen for mm. 30, 40-odd years. Mm. So she's very much at the fore again now. Right, OK. And she is, of course, the symbol of empire. Yeah, I was thinking that, day, that um, maybe she's the symbol because uh, because she was the weeping widow and because she was so silent for so long that it allowed people to assume a lot about her that she was just she was spearheading this when actually she could have had all these sort of, she was if she was in the limelight she might have mm. dropped her clanger and we might have had a different I, th- I think she's a much more capable woman than to drop her clanger <laughs> <laughs> did she ever drop any serious clangers? Uh, no so that's Disraeli that's the empire yep Victoria absolutely loves it okay what she doesn't love is Gladstone no boo very different relationship he's a, a liberal man and her least favourite Prime Minister. I really like him. She doesn't like his high church seriousness, mm. um, his pomposity, particularly that she's been queen all this time. She doesn't like somebody lecturing her. Yeah. Because she obviously feels that she knows more than everybody else. But he was a man very much who knew more than everybody else. He was a grand old man, wasn't he? He's a grand old man. He's anti-imperialism. Yeah. And increasingly radical in his political outlook yeah. and indeed his appeal to people he's appealing to. Appeal. Uh, very good political uh, <laughs> joke for the last episode. Yeah. So, d- but despite Victoria's antipathy, he's an arch monarchist. He's completely devoted to her and the royal family. So he spends much of his first ministry trying to coax her back. So he's committed to her, even though he knows that she doesn't like him. Yeah. So he's seeing the office rather than the person. Yeah. Right. Well, that's take a character. To be so his first ministry he spends much of it trying to get her back in the 1870s. He spends much of his time trying to get her back into public life. Yeah. Which of course is very important for her that she does, but she hates the fact that he's pushing her yeah. and bullying her like this. Right. So yeah. that sort of helps set the tone. But it's really his radicalism that she hates because he gets more and more radical as he gets older. So he pursues home rule for Ireland. Yeah. Which is in effect devolution for the whole of Ireland. Ireland ruling itself. The opposite of Disraeli. Yeah. Mm. Um, Extending the franchise, the number of people that can vote, limiting the powers of the House of Lords, um, and it's working-class appeal that he's actually dredging up. He's not just appealing to the right sort of chap, he's actually going on campaigns and appealing to ordinary What's workers. the point of working-class appeal at this time? Cause could the franchise is greatly increasing this period. We'll, right, again, okay, we'll cover yeah. it next time, but yeah. we'll see more reform acts, which really hugely boost. Which were his, or they were... It's a mix, appeals. actually, as there's... Um, the Conservatives, actually, in 1867, right. put forward a major bill. There's competition, of course, between people who are trying to get the vote from everybody. So yeah, think, well, if we do it, then yeah. They'll, yeah. they'll vote for us. Particularly famous is his Midlothian campaign. Um, this is when there have been reports of Turkish massacres of Bulgarian mm. uh, peasants, and Israeli didn't want anything to do with that, continuing to actually support Turkey as an ally. Victoria didn't want anything to do with it, but Gladstone's horrified by it. So he goes on these... Huge rallies, thousands of people come along to see him. He goes off on a train. Very, very popular. And his speeches are being reported mm. in the press almost more than a Victoria would be reported. Right. So she doesn't like the fact that he's taking the line. Like she doesn't the fact, like the fact that he's appealing yeah. to these sorts of Appeal. people down there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
So she said she never could have the slightest particle of confidence in him. A most disagreeable person. Half crazy and so excited. That sounds like she likes him. What was it? He's half crazy and so excited. As in he's completely irresponsible. Okay, right, yeah. A loose cannon. Yes. And you mentioned Gordon, mm. of course. In 1885, he was besieged in Khartoum, General Gordon. And Victoria's furious that Gladstone government was being too slow to send him support. And, of course, when he was killed, Victoria's outraged. And she completely blames Gladstone for this, to the extent that she issues him with a public rebuke by sending an uncoded telegram to him, telling him exactly how cross she is. Uncoded, were they normally... In- so usually, if there was a telegram given to somebody on the matter of state, there'd be some kind of code. So right. he'd know what it meant, but anybody else reading it wouldn't. Mm. Yeah. This one literally says exactly what she thinks. Love and it's the Queen. delivered to him by the station master. Right, so knowing that the station master's going <clears> to <throat> tell the world. Which, of course, he does. Mm. Mm. Um, so that's really not normal standard procedure. That's overstepping her mark a bit, isn't it? There? It is, rather. And... That's what she does. Mm. Salisbury was the next Conservative man to be a Prime Minister after Disraeli dies, um, and he was much more to Victoria's liking. Um, so when Gladstone returns to government again, she discusses all of Gladstone's failings with Salisbury. She continues to meet and mm. um, discuss things with Salisbury, even when he isn't Prime Minister. Discuss how Home Rule could be best defeated, because she completely opposes that as a policy of Gladstone. And uh, in, when Salisbury became Prime Minister and was forced to resign. She took a very unseemly time, apparently, before calling on Gladstone. They must be pretty tense meetings. Very tense meetings. But as I say, she's really overstepping the mark there, because she's, in effect, discussing with the leader of the opposition how best to oppose government policies. So because she, And because she blamed um, him for the murder of Gordon, mm. was did that transfer into public opinion that it was his fault? Um, no. Not, not to such a not to the extent. Thing, so I mean, extent. Oh, it, it? Certainly, it certainly doesn't reflect well. No, no. Cause there was a, was it Punch that ran Murder of Gordon rather than they ran Grand Old Man mm. and flipped it to be M O G Murder of Gordon. Mm. But I don't know if that was on the back of what the Queen said. I'm not sure if it was caused by Victoria, but obviously the two things together mm. would have made yeah. a pretty bang impact. But that's how that's how opposed she is to Gladstone. But an also important thing is that's how involved she is in this yeah, period really again. She's not hiding away in the shadows. Mm. She's absolutely... She's well in there, yeah. Sending snipey again. telegrams. Yeah. Meeting with the leader of the opposition. How can we defeat the government? Yeah. All these sorts of things. So she's very much involved. Not so positively, we might suggest, mm. when we come to review that later, but she is involved. She's, she's a strong mm. leader again. And all the politicians know that she's a very resolute and headstrong, headstrong yeah. woman that they have to take very seriously. And yeah. she knows what she's talking about. She's... A very experienced woman by this point, of course. It's like the Queen now, obviously. She's been around for so yeah. long, met so many of these people, been through these issues so many times. Yeah. So there aren't many people around that that much. Yeah. And he was at Bismarck when he sort of met her in the 1880s. said, there's a woman that one can do business with. Really? Mm. <laughs> Thatcher was echoing Bismarck <laughs> when she met Reagan. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, Gorbachev, is it? Can't remember which. Doesn't matter. And she is hugely popular. It's probably fair to say that her pro-imperialism, her not so fond of Gladstone and stuff, it's more in line with the public opinion. Yeah. So even though it's going overstepping the mark, mm. it is probably representative of a lot of sort of middle class yeah. opinion in Britain. And she has jubilees. Yeah. She's been around so long, and this time she's willing to enjoy them. So this is the golden 
so well 1887 we have the golden jubilee right. um national celebrations um again her carriage followed by 30 sons sons-in-laws and grandsons more across europe and she also met one uh, princess lilukalani who was the last queen of hawaii and apparently they when they met and had a discussion victoria was quite fascinated by her and uh, lilukalani said that she was a blood relative of victoria what so victoria said oh really why is that and she said, because my grandfather ate your Captain Cook. <laughs> wow. <laughs> How did that go down? Uh, not, not recorded. recorded. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but more importantly, she stays around even longer than that. 1896, she notes in her journal, today's the day on which I've reigned longer by a day than any English sovereign. She's overtaken George III Wee. in longevity stakes. I love the fact that she's actually aware of it and makes a point of yeah. noting yeah. it. And um, so, in 1897, we have the Diamond Jubilee. Sorry, did she make? Uh, she makes note of it, but did she were her opinions noted of it? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> Get in. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. So, 1897, we have the Diamond Jubilee. Yeah. Joseph Chamberlain, the colonial minister, decided they should turn it into a festival of empire. Mm-hmm. So, rather than inviting all the heads of state across Europe, they have 15 premiers, but no royalty. So, mm-hmm. it's imperial, not royal, not European. Her eldest grandson, Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany, presumed that he was an exception to the rule, but he was told no in certain terms that he wasn't. Really? So they're not, just not invited? He's not invited. Um, huge crowds again, cheering Victoria, who couldn't help smiling. There is a picture of her smiling. Wow. And the open carriages, oh, and even know. shedding tear. I've read a quote from her, yeah, about this. Well, it's in that Paxman book. Here is one. How kind they are. No one ever, I believe, has met with such an ovation as was given to me. The crowds were quite indescribable, and their enthusiasm really marvellous and deeply touching. The cheering was quite deafening, and every face seemed to be filled with real joy. It's, really, it's indescribable. It's a bit like the <laughs> <laughs> proper Murray Walker there. But she's hugely popular. She mm. is the embodiment of Britannia, of empire, of everything that is great about the period. She yeah. is the embodiment of it. Yeah, and being a woman, mm. kind of... Helped embody that because mm. Britannia being a female character yeah. and the history with Elizabeth I and the mother, Odyssey, the grandfather, the grandmother, yeah. all these sort of things. Yeah. She's got hospitals, cities, waterfalls, entire provinces named after her. But that's what, and that's what I mean about the, <clears throat> this period where, because she can be seen as like sort of having this, this sort of a mother of the empire, like mm. this maternal <clears throat> aura around the empire, which if it were a more go getting bloke, it would be harder to. Mm. Well, you can put that inference on it, but you... you yeah. I don't know, they, that really suited the Empire at the it's time, more, I think. more benevolent, it's yeah. less militaristic, it's more... Yeah, it's just... Nurturing. Nurturing a whole group of people, which this Jubilee reflected. Mm. Yeah. So she is prob- it's probably about as, as popular as a monarch would have been. Mm. Point. She's hugely popular. But, of course, she is only human. What she do? Fall in love again? <laughs> she falls in love. Gets married, gets completely drunk. <laughs> ruins everything. Drops a clanger. People start to die. Do they? They do. Um, within the family. Trying oh, to divorce her own children. Um, starts to die. First one, 1878, uh, Alice. Princess Alice. Um, died of diphtheria after an illness spread through her household. And after she kissed her sick, an infant son. Probably mm, pointed that she caught it. So as Disraeli said, it was the kiss of death. And then tragically, again, it was on the 14th of December that she no died. No way. Mm. Oh, what a 
1884, uh, Prince Leopold died. Um, he'd had long-term health issues with haemophilia, um, but uh, died of a brain hemorrhage after slipping and hitting his head. That would be the same haemophilia for, for the Tsar? Indeed. Right, okay. So um, and then in 1900, um, Prince Alfred dies. So she said, oh, God, my poor darling Affy gone too. My third grown-up child. It is hard at 81. And how old was he? He must have been in his 40s or 50s, 50s yeah. or so. But she, of course, now she is so old, sort of like with Edward III, yeah. George III, that their children start to die. Also, a son-in-law, Henry of Battenberg, um, Bertie's eldest son, Eddie, died. Her so grandchildren. Her grandchild has yeah. died. So the next... Heir after the next heir yeah. uh, has died. Also, she um, was troubled by the outbreak of the Boer War, yeah. um, which in the first couple of months saw successive uh, British defeats, leaving her full of anxiety and fear of what may be before us. Mm. And in 1901, her health finally starts to decline. She was a hypochondriac, um, but she had a completely iron constitution, very, very healthy and strong. Um, but she demands the attention of doctors. And there was one time a doctor had called from holiday uh, in Europe and he suspected that she probably only had flatulence. But he has to come all the way back yeah. to say, it's all right. We're fine. Really? Hmm. And it was, that wasn't the same time she then died? No. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> he was way off. <laughs> yeah. 1900, um, suffering from rheumatism, insomnia, la- la- uh, loss of appetite. But then in January of 1901, she enters her final illness. A final decline. 21st of January, she's falling fatally ill, losing her breath, struggling to take her food. Family all rush to Osborne, including Kaiser Wilhelm, which feels that he should be really? there no, for his grandmother, mm-hmm. so he comes across. There's a lot of detention around when to bring them in, partly because she said that she didn't want a deathbed scene, mm. but mainly because they fear that if they bring the family in too soon, the shock of seeing them all will make her think, oh, yeah, will yeah. think, oh, God, that means I'm about to die, and then she will die. Yeah. So they're worried about at what point to actually yeah, that is a tricky one. bring them into the room. Um, insatiable desire for information across the empire. Of course, by now we've got telegrams, telephones, news spreads very, very fast. Um, it's a slow drip of information, though, which means that actually many people are quite surprised when they do realise, actually, that she's really seriously ill. Mm. And this could be it. So as the Daily Telegraph said rather prosaically, the life of lives is dropping towards the valley of the shadow, and we are they, and and we are the very children of her reign. We realise that the sovereign and the mother, to whose being we would cling as to our own, may be taken from us forever. Mm. So you've got people sort of almost on tenderhooks mm. waiting for news. And she's sorry, I'm going back a bit here, but she's in Osborne House. Osborne. She's yeah. based there. She's not living in Buckingham Palace, or is this because she's... Well, she moves, she moves around, but Osborne is where she's, she, she is at her yeah. last. Um, so, on the 22nd of January, all the royals are brought to her bedside. They're told, this is it. Mm. She's off. Everyone is named to her, so she knows who's there, except for the Kaiser. Well, she was a bit irritated about that afterwards, but Bertie apparently vetoed it because he said it would be, get her a bit too excited. That he was here? Yeah. So they introduce everyone apart from the Kaiser. Yeah. They, they just, oh, so you've got the Kaiser sort of standing, standing in the middle going, <laughs> <some stuff. laughs> um, So everybody's there, but she recovers a little bit. Yeah. Gets a little bit better, takes some food. So the children are sent away. Does she then meet the Kaiser? Um, she does uh, eventually yeah. just okay. have a meeting with yeah. him. Um, so a doctor, um, James Reese, said, I can't help admiring her determination not to give up the struggle while she can. I hardly dare to hope she may yet win. She deserves to. 
So even slightly linking that maybe she might just turn this around. However, at two o'clock, they're brought back in again. She goes into another decline. Deathbed scene reassembles. They're all ready. But she hangs on. And so at four o'clock, they will get sent out again. (laughs) However, a bulletin is sent out to the public saying that the Queen is slowly sinking. It's sort of rather like this sort of of old ship that's Mm. gradually slipping under the waves. Mm. So there's no prospect, really, that she is going to recover. This is it. So then at six o'clock, the end really was approaching. Family all come back in again. Kaiser drops to his knees and supports Victoria on one side, on the right, um, and a doctor on the other. Victoria said to her doctor, uh, Sir James, I'm very ill. To which he responded, Your Majesty will soon be better. And then her daughter Helena described that a look of radiance appeared on her face. She opened her dear eyes quite wide, and one felt and knew she saw beyond the borderland and had seen and met all her loved ones. So she stared at Reed, the doctor, stared at Bertie, her eyes moved to a painting of, uh, of Christ, and then, as he said, that expression changes, and exactly half past six in the evening, she drew her last breath. Her last word, apparently, being Bertie. Yeah, we all choked up. Mm. That's lovely. Yeah, so she's... It's, I mean, it's a nice way to go, really. You know, she's an old woman. She's got a whole family around that's her. That's lovely. It's, it's quite peaceful. 81 years old, just short of being 82. Oh, that's so sweet. She's a good age for... Uh, I'm for very glad she made up with Bertie. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. She did. Okay. So, Victoria's died, and people react. Mm. And they don't know what to do. It, even though she's old... And it's not really that incredible that, you know, in 1901, an 81-year-old woman dies. But actually, really, everyday stability almost seems to depend on her. She's such a focal point across Britain, across the empire, that they all just can't imagine her not being there. It makes you look at and reflect on yourself Mm. a bit worse. It seems so stable, it's just Mm. everything's okay. She's there, and the fact that she goes, it's such a, Mm. a pal that people have to deal with. Daily Telegraph again. Who can think of the nation and the race without her? How can our minds compass the meaning of what has happened? The golden reign is closed. The supreme woman of the world, vested the highest, greatest of the good, is gone. Never, never lost like this. All that we have known is different now. All is altered. Uh, Future Prime Minister Arthur Balfour said, I can hardly yet realise the magnitude of the blow that has fallen upon the country. In all the history of the British monarchy, there never has been a case in which the feeling of national grief was so deep-seated, so universal, so spontaneous. We feel that the end of a great epoch has come. Indeed, internationally, um, there's lots of reactions as well. President McKinley in America lowered the White House flag to half-mast. First time that had ever been done for a foreign ruler. Boer prisoners of war apparently suspended their usual amusements, whatever those were, in concentration camps. Shanghai went into mourning for a month, the Japanese court for three months. Hong Kong gave an 81-gun salute. Athenian Municipal Council named a city square after Victoria. And the Belgian king ordered two months of mourning. That's amazing. It's all across the world. I mean, I know they're related, but the Japanese mm. Mm. one is a, this is good, strange one. And it was also rather awkward because it had been so long since Victoria came to the throne, that no one could actually really remember a time when she wasn't queen. Or how to do a proper handover. Or what on earth to do. So officials had to go through all these old documents of what happened with George IV and William IV. So Lord Escher noted, All has been confusion. The ignorance of historical precedent in men whose business it is to know is wonderful. Mm. Um, but eventually, they, obviously, they do work things out. Yeah. But the next thing, of course, is a funeral. 
Oh, yes, there's always potential <laughs> with a funeral or a coronation. We have one each episode. <laughs> exactly. um, she gave very thorough wishes of what she wanted. A military funeral. What? <clears throat> well, military funeral, so no embalming, no lying in state. She wanted, you know, full military procession oh, and gun okay, carriages right, yeah. and all this sort of thing. And she demanded that people be wearing, and she'd be wearing, purple and white. Why? No black. It's cha- that's a bit of a change. It is, so yeah. it's almost as if now that she is released from her grief... That ah, yeah, OK, but why purple and white? Just their royal colours, purple Royal colours. Mm. Um, now, we remember that she wasn't a fan of Handel. Mm. She said that uh, Handel always tired me, and I won't pretend that he doesn't. <laughs> uh, but the Dead March by Handel became something of an unofficial anthem across the country, so it's been played all over the place in yeah. memorial to Victoria. So she probably wouldn't have been very happy about that. <laughs> she also wouldn't have been very happy with what happened to her coffin. Good. She was at Osborne, um, and her coffin should have been sent to Osborne, so mm. she then gets put in it, brought back to yeah. London. Yeah. However, an undertaker's assistant arrived without a coffin and just to take her measurements. Mm. So they said, well, this can't do. We need to be, she needs to be moving. We've got timescales to do. So the physician, Reed, decided that they'd have to build a temporary coffin locally, and then the undertaker's assistant would have to send the measurements to London yeah. and get them made into the proper one pronto. Uh, but he said this wasn't what he'd been assigned to do. It's not my orders. can't be done. Who said that? The doctor? The undertaker's the undertaker, assistant right. said this yeah. can't be done. So um, Reed, the doctor, asked Kaiser Wilhelm II if he could do something about this. This, the undertaker's assistant <coughs> is, is calling the shots here. So the, uh, so the Emperor of Germany has to try and source a coffin. Yeah. Well, he doesn't have to source the coffin. He has to make sure something happens. So he squares up to this undertaker's oh, assistant. All right. Oh, right. It is always like this. When an ordinary humble person dies, everything is arranged quite easily and with reverence and care. When a personage dies, you fellows all lose your heads and make stupid mistakes which you ought to be ashamed of. The same happens in Germany. You're all alike. <laughs> I wish you'd have done German accent. I know, I was tempted, but I couldn't do it justice. Effectively, <laughs> told him that, you know, if you were in Germany, we'd have you shot for this. Yeah. And as uh, Davidson, another man there, noted that if the occasion had been a less grave and solemn one, there would have been much that was humorous in the Emperor's harangue to the rather dull undertaker's assistant. The Emperor frightened the poor fellow into helpless obedience. Just to sort out a coffin? Just to sort out the coffin. In the end, it was ended up that they just got rid of him, the Kaiser and the Doctor took the measurements. No way. For the coffin. amazing. (laughs) They Kaiser then, Wilhelm, Wilhelm the first, uh, the second, the second. Mm, so this is the one with the, the first, first world, world war. Thing. Yeah, he measured up the que- he measured up Queen Victoria for the for coffin. A coffin. That is a huge wreck. And had a rant against yeah. the United yeah. States. <laughs> <laughs> Poor man. Huh. Um, so when the funeral finally comes, um, huge crowds, about a million people, probably, yeah. on the streets, bigger than both of her jubilees. So dense, apparently, it went sixty deep. Right. In some places. So apparently only about one in 12 would have actually been able to see anything at all. Mm, mm. But they're all out there. Military funeral that she wanted. So you have horses um, dragging a gun carriage mm. through the streets of London. However, they became skittish, the horses, after standing in the cold um, for 90 odd minutes. And the back two of four reared up. And coffin almost toppled over. Oh, they were dragging the coffin one? Mm. Oh, God. Coffin almost yeah. toppled over. Mm. Um, and this was a problem because they'd broken their straps and they didn't have anything to reattach them. The horses to the... the two yeah. horses at the back. Yeah. And the front two could only pull the carriage themselves if they took a shortcut. Yeah. And they were 
you've got a million people on the street. You can't just <laughs> yeah. skip them out. Excuse me. So they had a problem. They had they were the procession is stuck with this massive carriage to pull, and they don't know what to do. Undertaker's braces. Well, no. What they did was the naval guard of honour who were marching alongside put down their weapons and dragged the carriage themselves. Well, so you had the sailors be... pulling the carriage. That's that's quite. That must have looked pretty cool. Well, yeah, say an improvised thing. Was, uh, the standard noted it was universally felt that nothing finer could have been done. The daughter of a long line of sea kings, herself a lover of the sea, was being taken to her tomb by the men of her own royal navy. Men and women alike were moved to tears. Yeah, it would have been quite powerful, I'm sure. So they made it without any further mishap at mm. the service, and then she was buried um, in the mausoleum at Frogmore, Windsor Castle. Reunited with Albert. Oh, of course. They're buried yeah. together. Sweet. Mm. Where's where, mm. Windsor? Windsor Castle is that? Yes, yeah, so it's Frogmore, so it's this own little oh, right. specially built okay. mausoleum. Oh. So that is the very long reign, the very long life of Victoria, come to an end. It's tricky. I'm not going to. Well, I am looking forward to, but it's going to be hard to sort out the uh, the um, factors. Factors. <coughs> oh, yeah, I should know that word. Episode three, what we're going to do is go right back to the beginning, <laughs> do it all again. We'll be doing prime ministers and events. So there's a lot of the politics that we've skipped over. We did a bit of Disraeli and Gladstone, but there's a lot more politics. We've been talking about social reform, yeah. um, political reform, the, the electoral empire. reform, the empire, events, things like the Crimean yeah. War and all these sorts of things, which we haven't really done because we've just done her life, yeah. times and events. So next time's prime ministers and events. The fourth episode is when we'll do... Factors. The actual factors, the actual review. How are you feeling about her at the moment as a sort of halfway point? Oh, it's too, there's two such so? distinct... I'm glad we split it up, because there's mm. two such <clears throat> distinct periods. Mm. Um, it's, that's, it's going to be jolly hard. Mm. It's going to be... Mm, she was... I don't think... At the moment, I'm mm. thinking... I'm not <clears throat> entirely sure, but I think she was very appropriate for the time. Mm. Uh, but I don't know. You know, and so if you're not interested mm. in the... Um, politics bit you've got a biography and then week after next we've got the mm. factors anyway so it's and it won't just be politics oh, there's be gonna be wars there's gonna be big the events there's gonna be wars and i think it's also fair to say that there's a lot of humorous stuff yeah with politicians i think you're going to take to melbourne and you're going to take to uh disraeli quite a bit some good quotes some amusing anecdotes plenty to look forward to next time cool but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me see you next time